0: Hello and welcome to Success Stories with Kendra Hall, the podcast where we sit down with the brightest stars and boldest thought leaders as they share their stories so you can create your own success story. I am your host, Kendra Hall. I'll admit one of the questions I try not to ask is how? How do you do it all? What special time machine do you have that gives you 33 hours in a day instead of 24? But in this conversation, I just, I couldn't help myself and I got my answer, but it wasn't the answer or in the way I expected it. I'm not going to tell you here in the introduction. I want you to experience it for yourself. But if you've ever wondered that about someone you admire, your answer is buried in this story. Let's get to telling it. Today's success story is Gretchen Rubin. The New York Times calls Gretchen Rubin the queen of the self-help memoir. She's the author of several books, including the blockbuster Times bestsellers, The Four Tendencies, Better Than Before, The Happiness Project, and Happier at Home. She has an enormous readership, both in print and online, and her books have sold more than 3.5 million copies worldwide in more than 30 languages. On her popular and award-winning weekly podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, she discusses good habits and happiness with her sister, Elizabeth Kraft. Fast Company included Gretchen in its list of most creative people in business. She's a member of Oprah's Super Soul 100, and she has previously been named to the Success 25 list of the most impactful voices in personal development. Gretchen Rubin, welcome to Success. We're excited to hear your story. I'm so
1: happy to be talking to you. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start. I um, Well, first, I have to tell you, uh, I have had your book for a long time. It was one of those that I just knew I needed, uh, The Happiness Project. I was going to start right at the very beginning. I hear that's a very good place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have the book and said, read through it. I mean, it's it's 10 years old now, at least, right? Yeah. I picked it back up um, just recently at a time where happiness. uh, At the time of recording this, we could all use a little bit more happiness in our lives as we're surviving through the pandemic. Um, And was just once again fascinated by how articulately you not only wove together the research, but also your own experiences. But I have to wonder, like after reading that introduction and hearing it back for yourself, did you always know that you were going to be the, well, what does the New York Times call it? The Queen of Self-Help Memoir? Tell me, was this always your plan?
1: Uh, absolutely not. So I started my career in law, um, and I was actually clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor uh, in Washington, D.C., when I decided that I wanted to become a writer and started working towards making my first book. And you think of The Happiness Project as being the beginning, but that was actually my fifth book. Um, so I'm a good example of somebody who worked very hard for 10 years in order to become an overnight sensation. Um, my first two, my first book was called Power, Money, Fame, Sex, A User's Guide, uh, which is kind of like a satirical guide. And then I wrote two biographies, one of Winston Churchill and one of JFK. Then I wrote this weird little book called Profane Waste about, uh, an issue that's always preoccupied me, um, which is why owners would choose to destroy their own possessions, which very niche, I know, but ever since law school, I had been very, very preoccupied with this question. So I finally wrote a book about it and got it off my, got it off my mind. Um, and then I wrote the Happiness Project, um, and then from there, that sort of I that that subject has just become is so vast, it's so inexhaustible that I've really been um, exploring it ever since. But the thing that all my books share is uh, an interest in human nature. I would say that is really um, what I write about, and so all of my books, even my earlier books, are all about some aspect of human nature, some way to look at human nature. Um, but, you know, it took me a long time to figure out that I wanted to be a writer. I, I was well on my way um, deep into law uh, when I had the idea that I wanted to write a book.
0: So what is, I have so many questions to ask you right now. What, okay, so first of all, what was it? Like, was there a moment, you know, you're you're in law, that is not an easy no. job to get. Um, no. You're working with the best of the best, Sandra Day O'Connor. I mean, that's a that's a good place to be. Was there a moment, like what happened, that you suddenly decided to shift gears? Do you remember that night, a conversation? Uh, What did that, how did that happen?
1: No, absolutely. Well, a lot of things came together, but the most significant moment was, um, so one of the things about me, and this has been true my whole life, it's probably one of my favorite things about myself, is that I will become very preoccupied with certain subjects, and I'll just do, like, just kind of throw everything down and start doing a huge amount of research. So recently, for instance, I was really, Like preoccupied with color and I did just like massive amounts of research into color. Um, And so, and like the placebo effect, I'm like an expert in the placebo effect now. So this happens to me all the time. It's happened to me my whole life. Um, And so what happened this time is I was, I was clerking for Justice O'Connor and I went outside for a walk at my lunch hour and I looked up at the Capitol Dome against the bright blue sky. And I thought, you know, I just asked myself a rhetorical question, just, you know, the way you do. It was like, what am I interested in that everybody else in the world is interested in? And I thought, well, power, money, fame, sex. And it was like, you know, my mind exploded and went power, money, fame, sex. And I immediately started going to research these subjects, which to me feel very linked. Um, And so, and I was just researching and researching and researching, and I was staying late at work and doing it. And I was doing it on the weekends. And then finally it occurred to me, you know, this is the kind of thing a person would do if they were going to write a book. Um, and then I thought, well, I could be a person who could write a book. And, um, and so I went to the bookstore and got a book called something like how to write and sell your nonfiction book proposal. And I just followed the directions. I didn't know anything about what to do. So I just like did what it said to do. Um, and you know, but that was the time several things were kind of helping me along the way. For instance, I had noticed Um, You know, here I was clerking uh, at the Supreme Court. So as you say, these are all like, you know, top law students and, and clerks. And they loved law. I mean, they were reading law journals on the weekend. They wanted to talk about law morning, noon and night on the lunch hour at the happy hour. And I thought, you know what? I do everything within my power to do the very best job that I can for Justice O'Connor, but I don't love it the way these folks do. Mm. And in the end, I don't know that I can keep it up, You know, not the way they can with their enthusiasm. And um, and then I went over to a friend's house and she had a really boring looking textbook. Um, She was in education grad school. And very dismissively, uh, I said, oh, is this the kind of thing you have to read for your program? And she said, oh yeah, but that's the kind of stuff I read on my own anyway. And I thought, okay, I want the kind of job where what I'm doing in my free time is what I would be doing for work. And what was I doing in my free time? I was writing a book. So I thought, okay, you know what, like, I, I I should think about doing this. And then I got to the point where I'm like, you know what, I'd rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. And so I need to just give it a shot and either succeed or fail and then figure it out from there.
0: So tell me, did you, so you got the book, How to Write a Nonfiction Book Proposal. I think I have that book. Yeah. Um, Or I, <laughs> I printed out a PDF. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you had that guidebook, of How to Write a Proposal. Did you, and you were, you had the information, you know, you'd done all the research. Did you just quit and then try to sell a, the book? Mm. Did you try to sell the book? Like, I want to know about yeah. this. Because some people are they'll take the leap of faith and, you know, do the whole burning bridges thing. And some people are more measured in how they approach these risks. So tell me about that.
1: Well, I did take another job. I went to work for, I was a a senior advisor for the, the chairman of the federal communications commission. And that was a really, that was an excellent job. I'm so glad that I, it gave me so much work experience. So I did that while I was working on the book, sort of in my free time. Um, And my husband was also, we met in law school. He was also in DC with me. Um, And And at that time he wanted to switch from law into finance. Mm -hmm. So in DC, like I got this book and started working on my proposal and he started taking financial accounting night courses at GW uh, University. And, and then we moved to New York. Um, my parents gave me really excellent advice. And they're like, if you want to end up someplace, go there. Mm-hmm. Because as an adult, sometimes you always think like, oh, I can always move. But then at a certain point, it's like, you're not going to move anymore. So if, right. get where you want to go, which yep. I thought was good advice. So yep. we're like, we want to end up in New York. Let's go. Because at that point, our jobs had kind of come to an end. And we needed to like re-up. Mm -hmm. And I was like, if we re-up in DC, we may never leave. And you want to work in finance. I want to write a book. The capital of both of those places is New York City. He's from New York City. So of course, like, you know, that's, he wanted to go back. So, so then we moved back. And at that point, that was where I sort of like, I I decided my full-time job is trying to sell a book. So I did not get a job in New York. Um, I moved, I, I, my FCC job ended and I went there. And he tried to get a job in finance, which he did. And I tried to get an agent, which is a huge, like, probably the hardest and most important step in writing a book. And I did. Uh, but there was a day where we got our notice from the New York State Bar Association telling us it was time to pay our bar fees. Well, it's not, that, it's not cheap to be a member of a bar. Right. And I said to my husband, like, ooh, should we pay our bar fees? And he's like, no, why would we do that? And I'm like, okay, we're doing this. Um, now, I I found out later, you can always go back in if you just pay the dues and do what you have to do to get reinstated. But at the time, it felt incredibly dramatic. Um, so that's how we did it. And I think it made it easier that we sort of both did it. And we did it as part of a move. It was kind of like, this is a new chapter in our lives. And here, let's see how it goes.
0: Let's do the whole thing. Yeah. I just... I love that, and I can hear the sirens too. I don't know if they're coming from your house or mine. Probably yes, could be the same siren. <laughs> it probably is. I'm in my closet, though. Um, ah. That's where I do my podcasting. Ah. Okay, ah. so so I, I want to go. Back, but forward. So you mentioned, this is your, the happiness project, which is the one that I knew you for. And it was interesting. No, 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 no,
1: no. This was my very first book. So this yeah, is Power, Money, Fame, one. Sex.
0: Yeah. The, yeah. This is the, and I remember reading about those books and, and as I was reading about it thinking now, where did those all come in? Okay. So the Power, Money, Fame, Sex is the first one. Yeah. And it was, so tell me about those how many years was it between that first one and then the one that you, because those first four didn't get as much recognition as the happiness project. So tell me about those 10 years. Like,
1: I was just writing, you know, I was a working writer and uh, most books don't sell very many copies. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was, you know, I mean, they did well, they did well enough that I could get another book contract, which as a book writer, if you're, if you're being traditionally published, the most important thing is that your book do well enough that they'll publish you again, because it's a big problem uh, if you kind of drop out of that system. Um, And so, you know, I was a working writer, some did better than others. Uh, Probably my Winston Churchill book did the best. I loved writing that book, uh, but um, you know, I was just working. Um, and but something interesting happened, which was my Kennedy book did did not do well at all. What, okay. and what they tell you when a book flops is they say it didn't find its audience, which oh. is a very diplomatic way of telling you that nobody bought your book. Right. <laughs> and what that did for me was it made me very focused on my sense, my feeling of powerlessness that I couldn't force. A review of the book. I couldn't get myself on TV. I couldn't make anybody, I couldn't tell anybody about the book. And I thought so many people are fascinated by JFK, but they just don't know my book exists. I have no way to tell them about it. And mm-hmm. so that, and that was right when blogging and social media and all this stuff was in its, was, it was still, uh, it wasn't new, but it was at the point where people who are very untechnical like me could really get in there. And mm-hmm. it was really sort of exploding. And I think because that book did so badly and I felt so bad about it, it really turned my attention to trying to connect with an audience myself mm-hmm. and building tools to connect with an audience um, ahead of time by, by putting my ideas out into the world and like trying to get people interested and, and trying to see what they were interested in trying mm-hmm. to engage with an audience. And so in a, it's a good example of how, you know, that old thing about you never know what's good news and what's bad news. At the time, it seemed terrible, but in, in retrospect, it was a very fortunate kind of disaster. Because if the book had done fine, I don't think I would have felt that I needed to develop all these other skills and spend my time doing these things. Whereas, in fact, uh, it was it was a huge engine of happiness and connection for me um, and really has has been a huge part of my writing life ever since. And so... So I always use that to comfort myself when something goes bad because I'm like, well, maybe this is actually really good uh, yeah. in the long run. If I, if I can learn the right lesson from what happened, then I can really gain from this. It's not always easy to understand the lessons of success and failure. So that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are often very valuable lessons.
0: We've had that as a, as a running discourse in our home the past couple months is this is neither fortune nor misfortune and I don't think we made that up I'm pretty sure somebody else did but oftentimes yeah if you give it enough time for the story to unfold you figure out what it was really meant to be so so you're telling me then that because one of the things that is so incredible about about what you've built is this audience? Is this? you know, when i I was like whispering to my friends that I got to have a conversation with you, And every time I mentioned your, your name, everyone says, "Oh, have you heard her podcast or oh, I get her letters or oh, oh I like, I've heard her on this podcast. like you've you've definitely become part of whoever you found your audience and they love you. So, my next question is: Which then came first for you? Was it building that audience that then you could move into this next series of books, or did the book come first? The uh, book. The book came first. The, so book the happiness. Came first. First. So tell me about that. So you had been, all right. So before you tell me about that, what, how did you switch from biographies to? self, I don't want to, you, you, you said it, well, you said it doesn't self-help, it's self-helpful. I feel like it's that kind of crossover, like, how did that movement happen? Um, well, in my writing,
1: usually the way that I write it is very dictated by what I want to say and how I want to communicate, and I am very interested in different structures, like my biographies don't follow a traditional biography structure um, my first book was like written in kind of double columns. And I remember my agent saying with this book, she's like, I want you to write a regular book. <laughs> like you just, just write a book a, like a regular ordinary, like narrative text. So I was like, okay. She's like, no boxes, no lists, no sidebars, no illustrations, like just <laughs> challenge yourself. I did get some lists in there, but yeah, um, yeah. I took her point. Um, and so really, uh, you know, that just seemed like the right way to tell it, because as I was getting into happiness, my experience was that I was reading all this research and I was reading all this philosophy and, you know, all this, all all these ideas for how to be happier. And what I wanted to know was like, well, was this going to work? I mean, everybody's full of great advice, but like, does this actually work? And I, some of it I was very skeptical about and some of it, um, I sounded, I couldn't wait to start. Um, and so when I had the idea for The Happiness Project, really, I was starting it just for myself. Again, this was just a, a side-ish interest mine, something that I was just like wildly interested in. I didn't mm. begin by thinking that it would be a book. It was just okay. something I was exploring for myself. So I was exploring it like, well, what am I going to try? Like, ooh, I read this research. I should do this. And so that was the way I approached it because it was just for me. Mm-hmm. But then at a certain point, it just got so unwieldy. And I had so many things that I wanted to do and try and like so many kind of, Uh, avenues that I wanted to pursue that I thought, well, maybe this is my next book. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I thought, okay, well, I'll write an account of what it was like to sort of be the guinea pig for all of these notions about how to be happier. Um, So that's just kind of how it came to be was me trying it out um, to see what I would find. Um, It's very easy to give good advice to other people, but when you're taking advice yourself, um, often that advice is different. Um, so I, I think it was a good discipline, um, that, uh, you know, I always, and, and it taught me a lot about how I'm different from other people because a lot of things that work for me over time, I realize don't work for other people. So it's not that they're universally effective. Um, they work for me. And what does that tell me about me and other people and about kind of the nature of happiness?
0: Yeah. So, so, I mean, it just, so tell me this, You've, you've done the writing thing. We, you know, and now the happiness project comes out. Um, you were used to the, you know, you had the success of the other four books. Was there, do you remember the moment when you knew that this was like, this was something else? This was, this was beyond the, this was something new. This was bigger than, um, do you remember that? There were kind of
1: two key moments. One is um, when you're writing a book, uh, one of the things that you talk about is your print run, which is how many books the your publisher is going to publish just initially. So if you hear like, oh, Suzanne Collins, it was a 500,000 print run. That means they think they're so confident that 500,000 people are going to buy that book. They're going to go ahead and print them. They're not even going to wait and see what the demand is. Now with most books, they don't, people aren't that sure that anyone's going to buy it. So you know you have a very modest print run and, 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 and publishers are, you know, understandably conservative because they don't want to have like hundreds or thousands of books left over that no one wanted to buy. And so what your print run is, is kind of a, an indication of how confident the publisher is and how many sales you're going to have at least initially, right? Um, because things can happen down the road, though too often they don't, they could. Um, so my print run they raised my print run a couple times. And that's a really strong sign that my very conservative publisher was feeling like, okay, we're going to get behind this book in a bigger way. Mm. So that was very encouraging as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, and then there was a day uh, when um, often when a book, especially these days because of the way book marketing works, if you ever hit the New York times bestseller list, you hit it the first week. Yep. Usually that's the, that's your highest place because um, every book that's been pre-ordered goes to that one week, and so it's it's kind of easier. That's kind of the easiest place to amass a lot of uh, a lot mm-hmm. of buyers. So my book hit the list the first week, but then it went to number one the second week, which is really huge. And I remember my I was in Seattle doing a book event, and right before I was like leaving to go to the event, um, my editor called and she said, "Gretchen, you're number one." And I was like, that was like, uh, you know, I'll never forget that hotel room and that moment because I was like, what? And then it was so exciting. Cause I went out to all these people and I'm like, I just went out. I had never won. And they were like, so excited for me. So it was really sweet. Um, so yeah, those were really big. Those were really big kind of, uh, milestones in my life as a writer.
0: Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, that, that's a big, I mean, to, to have it go. That's when you really know. If you hit the list once, like that one week, it's like, okay, we did it, but then to do it again and then of course now how many years did you spend on the New York Times bestseller? Oh, it was a lot. It was was it more than two years? Yeah, yeah that's a lot. Yeah. That's, good, that's good. So that was that was a highlight. Can you tell me? Are there any specific moments? Because of course, it's easy now to see where you are and and be like, oh, well, obviously, like this is, you know, you you get anyone who's achieved success from the outside. It looks like everything they touch has always turned to gold. Um, can you remember any moments at any point in this journey that felt like setbacks, that that felt like, you know, um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Any of oh, well, sure. Like when my Kennedy book didn't sell. And then I also wanted to write a biography of Richard Nixon because I've always been fascinated by Richard Nixon. And I spent like a whole summer researching it. And then my editor was like, you know what? I don't think anybody wants to read a biography of Richard Nixon. And so like I had to scrap that. That was very, that was very, just very dejected about that. I loved, I had this 40 ways format of telling a biography, which I loved and thought was really rich and kind of allowed me to tell a very complicated story. And it had kind of a really interesting uh, unconventional way. Um, and I wanted to do Benjamin Franklin. I wanted to do Leonardo da Vinci. There were all these people that I wanted, St. Therese de um, And it was just like, yeah, it's not really working. It's not really resonating with an audience. And a friend of mine who's an editor, I did not want to believe this, but he said, most people read a biography, they want to read like a comprehensive biography with like new research. And I'm like, that can't be true. But it, he's totally right. And so the kind of biography that I was writing, is it really the kind of, it's the kind of biography I love because I love unconventional structures. It's not the kind of biography that appeals to most people. Um, I thought my Churchill biography would really appeal to people who knew nothing about Churchill, and I would sort of introduce them to like the crazy, fascinating life of Winston Churchill. But in fact, the people who liked my book were the people who already knew everything about Winston Churchill, and so they appreciated what I was doing with the biography. So I didn't understand my audience. I created this thing called the Happiness Project Toolbox. It didn't work. I, it was kind of like, I was think I was kind of trying to create an app before apps even existed, before smartphones even existed. And um, it's just like, I put a lot of time and effort and money into creating it. And it just sort of never really worked. So I had, and I still get emails from people who are like, oh, I'm reading a copy of your book. And you mentioned the Happiness Project Toolbox, but I can't find it. I'm like, yeah, because that thing failed. Um, you know, I've done a lot of things that haven't worked. Um, And I try to remind myself that if I'm not failing, I'm not trying hard enough, Um, which is a hard, which is hard to remember if you like to succeed. Um, Mm -hmm. But failure really is, uh, you know, an indication that
0: you're being bold enough, I think, at least for myself. So, what do you do? Because because now, especially in the work that you're in, in for anyone who, who is looking at going into you know the thought leadership or, or wanting to write, what did you do when even though you knew this was a good idea, like you loved you loved this thing that you were creating? How did you reconcile and and let it be okay that other people didn't and they just didn't want it? Like how do you make that okay within yourself? To abandon something that you really still love?
1: Well, part of it was that I had the Happiness Project that, that was so enticing to me. I mean, I think that really made it easier because I was so excited about doing it. It was so different. Now, if I had been, if my, if my books had worked and I was writing, I was deep into a 40 ways to look at Leonardo da Vinci, I think I would have just done the happiness project as a side project. I would have done it on my own in a much smaller way. And I would have been happily writing about Leonardo da Vinci, which still sounds like a tremendous amount of fun to me. Um, you know, but, but it, but it wasn't working. Um, and it was right. And I got the idea about the happiness project right when I was, when I was kind of, At the time that the kennedy book was sort of getting resolved and so it it just kind of worked perfectly in terms of oh now i see this other big shiny thing that i want to do uh okay maybe i should try it because it's in 40 ways too it's like i could always come back to it i mean it's a form that i could always go back to so i was like well i could try this and see how this goes Um, and uh yeah so it was it was easier for me because i it wasn't like i was casting about yeah. For another opportunity. It was like I was just licking my chops and couldn't wait to be like, oh, now this is my full-time job. Everything, you know, like it's a billable hour now for me to go to the library and research happiness. I mean, it was like so fun. Um, and I have to say, it's still so fun. I'm like, you know what? I feel like I need to go to a perfume store and try on a lot of perfumes. This is like, this is Counts' workday for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I'm writing a book is. about the body and the senses. I'm like. You know, I bought some Jiffy Pop the other day and I'm like, hey, this is for work, people. Expense you know? it. Expense,
0: expense. You know, it's,
1: it's fun. Um, it is fun. And so, uh, so I think that made it easier for me. Yeah. I feel like what's hard for people, and I certainly know many people have been in this experience, where you know what you don't want. Mm-hmm. You don't you want to leave where you are, but you don't know where to go. And, and that's hard because you have to figure out where to go. That's when you pull out like what color is your parachute and do all that stuff. For me, there was always kind of the death star with the tractor beam pulling me toward it. It was like, oh my gosh, I, I'm powerless to, to resist my, my desire to engage with this thing. So that makes it a lot easier because I was just, I had that strong, that kind of the desire uh, to pull me forward.
0: And I think that that's, I mean, listening to everything that you've said thus far, you allow yourself to be, I feel like there's a belief in you that that, that that death star will pull you to wherever you're supposed to go next, you know, whether it was New York City, whether it was like, you allow yourself, which I think a lot of people don't. Well, and
1: but it, you know, there's kind of a risk to that too, there because is. Um, especially, like I've talked to many, many people, writers, mostly because that's who I hang out with as writers, there's kind of a thing that can happen um, where you have kind of a blocking project where there's something that you want to work on so badly that you can't resist it, even though it doesn't really make professional sense or like you really have no idea what you're doing. Like I have a friend who's like an, a, you know, a highly esteemed journalist and she's, you know, on a work sabbatical to write a play. And I'm like, what makes you think you're going to be able to write a play? And she's like, nothing. I have no reason to think that I'm going to write a good play at all. And in fact, I don't even really want to write a play, except that I feel so compelled to write a play that I'm like helpless in the face of it. And I have experienced lesser of Like I'm working on this thing that I'm kind of calling scientific astrology for is like a placeholder name. And I'm writing a book of aphorisms, which I spent a huge amount of my work day percentage-wise, like being like, oh, I'm going to write an aphorism and it'll be a little side project at some point. Is it the highest and best use of my time in any kind of like, you know, probably not. I love it. So I'm happy to do it. But sometimes this desire to do something can actually um, be from a professional sense, it can be counterproductive. It might be enormously satisfying in a creative way. Sometimes it, it's like people don't even really feel like they're that creative. They're just like, they feel helpless in front yeah, of it. Yeah. Um, so that is, that's kind of a, a strange thing that, that
0: I have seen and experienced. I, um, so I have to ask you, <laughs> as you're talking and as you're sharing all of these things, I know you're a mother, you're a wife. I really do feel like you might live in a different universe where there are like 50 hours in your day versus 24 in the rest of ours. Can you, even though this isn't a time management conversation, but I'm, I, I want to know like how, how, where do you get all of this beautiful time to pursue all of these? And, and I, I, I'm sure people can hear it through your voice, but you are just alive with, you're just like lit up with excitement. Where do you get all the time for this?
1: Um, well, one of the things is, I, you know, I wrote a book called The Four Tendencies where I talk about this personality framework that I developed. And um, when I did that, I realized that I am, there's, there's upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. There's a free quick quiz on my site. If you go to quiz.gretchenrubin.com, you can take this quiz. Like 2.8 million people have taken it. It's free um so i found out that i am an upholder and and you know in a nutshell what it means is that a polder readily meets outer and inner uh expectations so they meet the work deadline they keep the new year's resolution without much fuss and i have to say you know i think that being an upholder really serves me well for something like this because i'm very self-directed like a lot of things that i do there's nobody telling me what to do like i have you know like i have this blog that i write um, then there are things where, like, I have a, a weekly podcast and there's a lot of accountability there, but a lot of it is just like me sitting down and, like, ma- you know, keeping it going. Um, I have book projects that, you know, have years, you know, year long horizons. Um, and that isn't hard for me to manage. Um, and I think uh, having talked to people who are questioners and obligers and rebels, those. It can it can pre- it can prevent it can present certain challenges um, to other times. Which there's there's fixes for. There's ways to deal with it without actually much fuss once you know, kind of how to do it in the right way. But I do think being an upholder, it's like it's not hard. Like I get up at every day at six. I get, I you know I walk my dog. I sit down at work. You know I exercise. Like I it's not hard for me to do the things that keep me on track and like kind of keep, make it easy for me to focus and make it easy for me to feel energetic. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of it is just kind of managing your, 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 your body and your head. Mm -hmm. Um, so I spend a lot of time just doing things to make sure that I, I can, you know, that I can focus and that I'm well rested and all that stuff. Yeah. And my children are older now too. So I don't have to like, uh, there's so much less work when you're not you know, uh, when you're
0: not homeschooling two yeah, children, yeah, exactly. You know, right they
1: can take a bath by themselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh so you know to this day I still this is kind of TMI, but I still leave like when I go to the bathroom in my own house, I still leave the door ajar because I was so trained for so many years. Like because you always have to be like, okay, I'm gonna run to the bathroom, but I'm gonna keep my ears open unless something <laughs> terrible happens <laughs> listening for that crash. And even now, like, of course, if I go to, if I'm someplace else, I close the door. But at home, I'm like, I cannot break myself of the habit of just leaving it open so I can hear what's going on. Don't ever Where's use,
0: the, yeah, don't ever use the ladies room at a restaurant when Gretchen's there. Because yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. I'm before. better at what I'm at and about. But yeah. um. So, so that's good. You know, that's a lot. They, they don't, they don't take, uh you know, I don't have to right get them on zoom in the morning to link up with their, their classroom or anything.
0: Try to figure out what third grade math is. So if yeah. right now you're having upholder envy, I took the quiz. I am oh, upholder as well. You are, uh, there you go. Actually, in many ways, as I was reading, we are like the same person in Ooh. that. Like I uh, just read, you know, we went, the first couple months of the pandemic was kind of a free for all. So it was like, eat what you want, do what you want, you know, whatever it was. And then I was like, you know what? I really need to get back on track. And the first thing without even was, all right, I know I need seven hours of sleep. So how do I set up my night? I think that's where things are going to, my whole, the rest of my day is going to start with success depending on what time I go to bed. And I set that alarm on my, and so then as I was reading the happiness, I was like, oh, right. That was, it was so funny. That was month one. It's not January. It feels like January. It feels like Um Yeah. Well, it's
1: funny because a lot of people say, cause I, I've written a lot about how I quit sugar uh, and I really uh-huh. like I eat a very, very low carb diet, except for like vegetables and nuts. I don't really eat anything with carbs in it. That doesn't I, count. And people say to me like, oh, well, well, how are you eating during the pandemic? And I'm like, what? Yeah, exactly the way I ate before. I I, it doesn't like, to me, that doesn't affect it. Like I would never say to myself, oh, I'm going to have a big bowl of ice cream because of that. It's like, it, it didn't, like, that doesn't tempt me. Yeah. And I don't say that, like, I just, that's just my nature, yeah. uh, is that if anything, I'm too rigid and will cling to, the, to my habits and my routines even kind of too, too forcefully. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I think maybe you experience this as an upholder too. Often upholders take very great comfort. And feel very reassured by sticking to their habits and their routines. So somebody else might say, oh, well, you'll feel better if you kind of cut yourself some slack. For an upholder, often that's not good advice. They don't feel comforted by cutting themselves slack. They feel comforted by like sort of going through their to-do list and their calendar and kind of executing as normal. But it took me a long time to understand that while I feel like comforted by going through my to-do list and my calendar, a lot of people don't feel that way. You know, It's just, it's just people, are, people respond differently.
0: That was was a big discussion, actually, in our household. We suddenly had four people um, who needed different, and and I'm an upholder. I know my nine-year-old is an upholder. We needed a schedule printed out. The day they said that we weren't going back to school was the day I made a calendar, a schedule. This is what our day looks like. Where's my husband? He would just kind of da-da-da. And we've learned... To accept that he doesn't need the plan I do and I'm okay diverting from the plan actually as long as I know that I have diverted from the plan (laughs) it's about having the plan there in the first place so Gretchen with all the incredible things that you've done and well just a few more questions what is one of your proudest moments do you remember that one and, and it could have just been a, a, a small moment, a walk through Central Park or a, a conversation or an interview that you, station you ended up getting on, but where you looked around, you had that moment where you paused and thought, wow, this is amazing. What are what, one of those?
1: So my, moment, my my proud moment was kind of thwarted. Uh, so I had, had an inter- I had been asked to interview with Justice Sandra Day O'Connor uh, for a clerkship, which of course was huge. Um, so I went and I interviewed with her, and then I came back to New Haven, where I was in law school, and I didn't hear anything. And you know I was very dejected. But what are you going to do? And um, and then I get this call. I get a message at like you know, 6.30 on Friday, I see it, that Justice O'Connor's chambers had called earlier that day, but of course, I couldn't call until Monday, so, ah! Oh, no! I I didn't know what was going on, so I call first thing Monday morning, and she's like, Gretchen, and she had this very emphatic way of saying, Gretchen, I sent you a letter offering you a clerkship, and I haven't heard back from you, I mean, because obviously, she knows I'm going to say yes, right? I'm like, (laughs) Justice, I didn't get the letter, I never got anything, and you know what I think? I think maybe somebody saw that it had her, it was from her and had her signature in it and maybe took it. Anyway, because I, I never had got any mail missing before. Yeah. But I didn't get that letter. So, so I was like, justice, yes, 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 yes. I will take the clerkship. But it wasn't like the the triumphant moment of like me jumping up and down with a letter in my hand because it was like so protracted. And in fact, when I went and became a clerk, I asked your secretary, I'm like, can you please just like, if you have that in the computer, will you print it out for me? Just so I like, I have like a copy of it. Because uh, I want it, um so she did, uh, so that was very exciting, um but it didn't it didn't play out in the most cinematic way,
0: yeah, well, and I think it's interesting too of the uh, of the moments to choose from it's one from your Sandra day O'Connor days versus you know, I thought for sure it was going to be oh, when the second book was on the list, or oh, when it was speaking at this stadium i I think that's a beautiful thing that we can have these huge victories um from all different places in our life
1: yeah that's that was that say there are some moments that really are game changers yeah and for a, if you're a lawyer and I was a, I was a lawyer then uh that is a game-changing moment for sure yeah
0: okay so gretchen who is someone whose story has inspired you, and maybe they don't know it. Mm, can they be dead? They can be dead. Okay,
1: so uh, in the Happiness Project, or maybe it's in Happier at Home, I can't remember, uh, I write about St. Therese of Lisieux. So St. Therese of Lisieux, I knew nothing about her, I'm not Catholic, um, but uh, I I read about, Thomas Merton has a book called Seven Story Mountain, very, very famous memoir, and he's a very kind of misanthropic, uh, curmudgeonly fellow, and in it, he talks about the little flower, which is the nickname for St. Therese, and so I was intrigued, and I decide, I will often read from one, if one book mentions a book, I'll go and read the book that it mentions. So I was reading, so I read her memoir called Story of a Soul. Uh, which is, which is her spiritual memoir. And the thing that's interesting about St. Therese, if you know nothing about her, is she died at age 23 of tuberculosis and she spent most of her life, much of her life uh, in a cloistered convent um, with just like, you know, a few dozen other nuns, many of whom were her actual biological sisters. Uh, So she led this very literally cloistered life. But I read story of a soul, and I was like, Saint Therese is my spiritual master. I've read so many um, accounts of Saint Therese, and like how she became a saint. She's also a doctor of the church, so she's like a super saint. I have, you know, I have the book of her photos. I have, you know, I have all these. I I just have studied her immensely, and. she's a saint with a really good sense of humor which you don't always associate uh with a saint Mm -hmm. um and she's so different from me and yet i really do feel like she's my spiritual master and i was just thinking the other day i'm like you know what i should reread story of a soul which i've read like 15 times um because i find different things in it every time i read it and um i think she's really kind of misunderstood or mischaracterized i think people don't you know what do i know but um Anyway, I, I, I often think about St. Therese and uh, kind of her, she, she's known for the little way. Um, mm. Anyway, uh, so again, it's like a preoccupation of mine where I'm like wildly interested in St. Therese of Lucia, which most people are not interested in. And um, yet I here, I spend hours, you know, hours and hours. I have like a whole two, two shelves in my bookcase that's just books about St. Therese. Uh. Um so I would say
0: the story of St. Therese. I love that you. My favorite thing about you now officially is like how passionate you are about the things you are passionate about, mm. and I, I, I think that 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 just right there, it it, I can feel. It makes me more passionate about my things. It makes me passionate about your things too. Oh but like yes. it's just Catch this, it. like it's like this, yeah, contagious, contagious passion so one last question well first first of all where can we where can we find you anything that's upcoming that we need to know about Mm. uh
1: So kind of the clearinghouse for all my things is uh, my website, GretchenRubin.com. And so I have posts there that I do. I have have all kinds of resources. You can see about all my books. I wrote a book called Better Than Before that's all about habit formation. That might be something that would be interesting to your listeners because it's all about how to make and break habits. The book about the four tendencies um, that I mentioned. Uh, Again, the quiz is quiz.GretchenRubin.com. And that's free and very quick. You took it. So, you I took
0: it. Yeah, it's fast.
1: And then I have a podcast, a weekly podcast that I do with my sister um, called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, which is really like very concrete ideas for how to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. Um, She's a TV writer in LA, so, um, you know, we... In, in many ways, we're very different. In many ways, we're very much the same. You're
0: great together. You're so great oh, together. Thank on you. That. Like it's such a good, it's such a good combo.
1: Mm-hmm. My most recent book, which I think is a particular interest to people who are sheltering in place, is mm-hmm. Outer Order, Inner Calm. It's like a fun little book that I did about why outer order contributes to inner calm for most people, and and like tips and tricks and solutions for how to create more outer order without you know like spending a week of your vacation doing it um but i've heard from a lot of people because now that people are really using their spaces very differently and there's a lot more load you know in our house for running the dishwasher it seems like every 10 minutes you know um because there's just everybody's there eating every meal all the time yeah um so that's something and my next book which is very far off sadly um but i'm having so much fun is a book about the body and the senses, getting to the mind through the body uh Still no title. I'm open to any kind of uh, suggestions. And then I'm all over social media at Gretchen Rubin. And I love to hear people's insights and questions and comments and suggestions. So um, you can find me. I'm just, I'm wildly everywhere.
0: I know. And, and in the most wonderfully passionate way. Okay. One last question um, for the listeners who are in the middle of their own success story. Um, you mentioned like the, the overnight success that took 10 years. Yes. Is there, is there anything you would say to them as they're listening to you now?
1: Well, I would repeat some advice that my father often said to my sister and me when we were growing up. And I, I think that it's really wise, which is to enjoy the process. Mm. And what I found is, you know, when you enjoy the process, then outcomes don't matter as much. Of course, it matters if something succeeds and fails. And of course, you'll be very sad and upset and disappointed if something doesn't work out. But if you enjoy the process, it's much less bitter. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you if all you're doing is trying to achieve a goal, if all you, if you're like I hate being a lawyer but I, I really want to make partner. It's like yeah. then if you don't make partner, it's devastating. Whereas if you like what you do, it's like I loved writing my bo- book about JFK. I just wrote a blog post quoting JFK yesterday. Yeah. I I would never trade that away. And so yeah, I'm disappointed that book didn't do well. I'm glad that I learned something from it, but I enjoyed the process so much that It wasn't like the whole thing just rose and fell on the outcome. And so I think sometimes it's like, it's easy to forget that we we are enjoying the process. And I also think if we can't enjoy the process, maybe maybe it's time to think about a different aim Um, because our lives uh, mostly are about the process. So you want to be able to enjoy the process. So my father always said that and uh, it really sunk into with me.
0: What, what is that lyric? It's the journey, not the yes, destination. destination. Yep. <laughs> I clearly am a huge music buff. Uh, well, Gretchen, I just wanted to say for myself in particular, but I'm sure also on behalf of all of our listeners that thank you so much for sharing your stories and we are wishing you continued success. Thank you. I so enjoyed getting the chance to talk to you.